This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 66, The Secret Life of Whole Life Insurance. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of our podcast. Um, I am your host, Holly Bach, and with me here in the studio today is Mark Willis. Hi there. All right. Well, thanks, guys. So we just came out of kind of a little mini series a little bit where we had spent a couple episodes busting uh, common financial myths. And we just wanted to kind of pause a little bit from um, all the myth busting. We'll come back to it. Don't worry. Um, but we just wanted to pause from that topic or kind of that that line and share a little bit with you guys about the history of whole life and its origin. You know, where did it come from and really just how and why it's lasted as long as it has. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, a, a, maybe a common misconception is that maybe whole life insurance is, is new or it's so old, it's dated or, you know, kind of this misunderstanding of how long whole life insurance has been around and really how, um, common it is in our society and, and how many people do have it or have used it. And so along that, we're even going to kind of share some stories of famous people that you, I can guarantee you've heard of, um, who have used whole life insurance in some way that has maybe even impacted your life today. Mm, so yeah. um, that's going to be really fun to jump into some of those. And I mean, these stories are, um, you know, everywhere from 100 years ago all the way up to today. So it's going to be fun to jump into some of that content. But um, first thing I think we wanted to kind of jump into was the history. Just, I mean, Mark, when yeah. did life insurance start? Yeah, I well, mean, I mean, you're, you're, you're exactly right. A lot of people look at this and say, well, you know, this is a you know, look up bank on yourself scam on Google and you'll find tons of content and articles. I mean, anyone out there who has 10 hours to kill and an opinion and an internet connection can write whatever <laughs> they want on there. Uh, so, you know, there's plenty of misinformation, but if this was such a scam or if this was such a, you know, bad place to keep your cash, how has it lasted so long, right? Exactly. I mean, we were doing some of the research for this episode and I was stunned at how far back the history of life insurance has been in the human experience. Uh, so, you know, life insurance existed way back before I ever thought it would have. Uh, I was so, so surprised. Uh, I came across some uh, research and some evidence that says that it goes clear back to Roman times. So at least a full century before, you know, like uh, modern uh, BC, right? Uh, so in the, the first 150 year BC, we have examples and evidence of the first forms of life insurance. So funerals were even more expensive then than, than they are today because there was a lot of well, uh, there's just a lot of pomp and circumstance that went around funerals back then. Uh, but like now and even back then, they were unexpected. And when they're expected, you know, they often came after a long illness, medical expenses that would have drained the family's resources even back then, right? So the first famous person in our long list that we're going to be sharing today that used life insurance was a guy named Caius Marius. So he was a Roman general and a military leader. So hail Caius, right? Wherever this guy is. So 
if you've never heard of him, <laughs> I'll forgive you on this case. But <laughs> he essentially established burial clubs in ancient Rome. So first of all, I really just wanted to get an invitation to a burial club. That just <laughs> sounds like so much fun. Oh, my goodness. So, sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't have like Netflix back then, I'm guessing, you know, if that's the <laughs> form of entertainment. So anyway, among his troops, his Roman garrison, he figured out that if everybody in his group put a few copper coins into their pot every week, then there'd be enough cash to cover the cost of burial uh, whenever it came up for whomever it was needed for. Uh, And it wasn't too long before someone else realized that if everyone would just cough up a little bit extra, they could not only take care of those burial expenses, but give something to the survivors, the widows, the children as well. And thus, that was life insurance, uh, born 2,000 plus years ago. The only problem with that whole um, project was that nobody knew exactly how much it would cost or what the odds were that someone would need the funds. Uh, So uh, it it was really kind of lost after that to the Dark Ages and the medieval period. And it would be almost 1,500 years before the topic of life insurance would be picked up again and that question of cost answered. So fast forward with me now, dear listener, to the 1600s. Another famous guy in England, uh, John Grant. I don't know if that's how you say his last name or not, G-R-A-U-N-T. He's a haberdasher, so apparently he was also coined the world's first hipster. Uh, (laughs) But uh, how much would you need to charge for a life insurance policy so that the the one charging it wouldn't go broke? Well, how did he figure it out? Uh, Well, you know, it's a it's a kind of an interesting story, Uh, but it it takes a turn into a coffee house of all places. So take us to that story. Holly? Yeah, so in now fast forward a little bit more to 1688, uh, there was a gentleman, Edward Lloyds. He owned a famous coffee house. And so it was a small shop in London Tower or on London Tower Street. And it was a popular gathering place for ship captains, ship owners, and merchants. It kind of became the go to place for shipping news and then even eventually marine insurance. So it was there that this modern concept of an insurance company came into to being. So people would insure their cargo and uh, the workers on the boat that were heading to the, you know, kind of the scary new world. So it was a way of insuring their just ship cargo. So skip ahead a decade. And now we're um, introduced to another gentleman who you may have heard of, Edmund Haley, namesake of Haley's Comet. Uh, so he started putting together records of when people died. Okay, so you thought your uncle was creepy. Here's a guy who's just keeping track of all the deaths in his town. And that. (laughs) He got a comet for that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They put him on a comet to get him out of here, I guess. (laughs) Um, But that became the platform for actuarial science. So these are people, actuaries, who know very precisely when large groups of people will have individual deaths. So they're not fortune tellers, they don't know precisely yours or my ultimate day. But they can say out of 10,000 people my age, how many people uh, are going to pass away this year? Yep. And so once we kind of had that science in place, this actuarial science in place, that's when things were really kind of able to take off and we were able to see kind of the birth of these insurance companies. So then about another decade later, um, in 1706, the Amicable Society for a Perpetual Assurance Office. Come on. Quite clap, the mouthful. Clap, clap. That's um, amazing. Well done. Was, was founded as the 
first life insurance company. So in 1706, we have our first official founded insurance company. So the ASPA, they're already getting acronyms on us, and that's <laughs> back in 1706. Okay, and then the Society for Equitable Assurances. Tell us about that. Yeah, so then um, that was on lives and survivorship. Okay, so now we've got lives and survivorship. That was founded um, in 1762, and that was actually the world's first mutual insurer. And so it pioneered the age um, of where you had premiums that were based on mortality rates. And it also even started paying its first reversionary bonus is what they called it. So what we know as dividends today mm, were yeah. reversionary bonuses back then. So that's pretty cool. And um, so they paid that out. The reversionary bonus or kind of the inception of the dividend was in 1776. Now, what else was going on in 1776, Holly? Freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pull out your uh, Mel Gibson scream right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Braveheart. So yeah, you're right. That's interesting and fascinating that, so this is a co-op, a, a, a corporation of mutually like-minded people who chipped in together and not only took care of their orphans and widows, not only took care of burial, but also were profiting from the business that they were into in together. That's amazing. Um, and it just so happens to coincide with the birth of the United States. Very, very interesting. Okay, so the Presbyterian Synod for Philadelphia. Do you say synod or synod? I've said synod uh, and synod uh, interchangeably, but it's the Presbyterian Synod of Philadelphia, which was proposed by Benjamin Franklin, sponsored the first life insurance corporation in America for the benefit of Presbyterian ministers and their dependents. So uh, Episcopalian ministers organized a similar fund a decade later. So now we've got kind of fraternal benefits societies that are cooperating for uh, their mutual benefit if one should pass. And it goes everything from Presbyterians to you know Jewish collectives too and, and non-religious groups uh, that were band banding together to take care of their most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So that first product that they came up with was term insurance. Uh, of course, a young person would have a cheaper life insurance policy since the likelihood of him passing away was far less. People liked the idea of instantly creating an estate for very little money. And that's really what term insurance and all life insurance really does. The first term in Ben Franklin's company was seven years. So it was a seven-year term with a return of premium at the end of that period of time. Whole life was an innovation from 200 years ago. Uh, that was created basically as term insurance with no term. That's kind of how they uh, marketed it. Uh, and it also built up a cash accumulation. So sort of a spot payment on the death benefit at any point that you wanted out of their contract. You'd got sort of a go away money, sort of a walk away money uh, for that period, however long uh, you'd kept it. So 150 years ago, the only way to get money out of a whole life policy if you needed cash or ran into a financial emergency was to basically just surrender the whole policy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that spot payment, you'd walk away with that money and the insurance company would close down their obligation to your family. And so if you needed, you know, two grand or something to fix up your house, you'd have to forego the future benefit to your family. And that was not, you know, a, a perfect scenario for a lot of consumers way back in the day. So the older you were, the larger that spot, um, spot payment would be since it's more likely that you're closer to the age that the insurance company might have to pay your family. So a little known company called Prudential uh, came up with this idea of the policy loan, which gave us uninterrupting compound growth, even when we 
uh, accessed cash for, from the policy, we didn't surrender it. We just loaned against it. So tell us about that, Holly. Yeah. And so then that's, that was really the key, right? So right there, coming up with this idea of cash accumulation, having that cash account on the policy, and then even just then coupling it with a policy loan, that was really the birth of um, the whole life insurance as we know it today. And of course, it's evolved even more. I mean, exponentially since then too. Um, but really that was kind of like the first kind of inception of what we, you know, our modern concept of, of whole life insurance today. So that was the kind of a key shift in the foundation of our modern day whole life insurance. And so that opened the door for using life insurance in ways that we've been describing about in our podcast. Um, this made it possible for not only us as individuals, but also a couple other people you've probably heard of, um, made it possible for us and them to use whole life to not only protect our families, but maybe even, you know, save businesses or Mm. even start new businesses. So we kind of wanted to jump into a couple, um, now that we've kind of caught up to today in a way on the history of whole life insurance, now we're going to jump back into the past (laughs) and work our way back to today again, um, sharing some stories of some people that you guys may or may not um, have heard of, but I would, I'd put my money on the fact that you've heard them. Um, So we're going to go back a hundred years to 1893, over over 100 years to 1893. Uh, there was a couple, Leland and Jane Stanford. So maybe you don't know much about their first names, but you've probably heard of Stanford University. Um, so their last name might ring a little bit of a bell. And so um, just happened to be the case that Leland and Jane Stanford have a life insurance policy with Pacific Mutual Life. Um, which actually today is now known as Pacific Life, if you've heard of them. So they ceremoniously issued its first policy to Leland Stanford, um, which was the company's first president as well in 1868. So after his son, Leland Jr., he died of typhoid fever in 1884 at the age of 15, the former California governor and Utah senator and his wife, Jane L., Stanford, determined that because they could no longer do anything for their own child because he'd pass away, they would use their wealth to do something for other people's children. So they lost their son and they decided that they wanted to do something for others um, kind of in their in their grief. They wow. made that they made that decision. So with a strong belief in the importance of a practical education for men and women that would prepare them to be productive and successful, six years of planning led them to establish Leland Stanford Junior University in Palo Alto, California in 1891 uh, with a pioneer class of 555 students, Hmm. of which Herbert Hoover was one of them. Of vacuum fame, right? Yeah. (laughs) So fun fact there. Okay. But what does life insurance have to do with any of this? Well, it just so happened. So they uh, started the school in 1891. They had that first class. But then in 1893, so just two 
two years later, um, Leland actually passed away. And um, so with that, though, we, as we mentioned before, he had a life insurance policy. And so that life insurance death benefit was paid out to Jane Stanford, his wife, and she was actually able to use the proceeds from that insurance policy to keep Stanford University alive uh, during that difficult time. There was, they were running on some hardships. And so she ended up using his death benefit, again, not for herself, um, but she actually used it for the school and for others, um, using it to help fund their operations and even pay faculty. So if it weren't for life insurance, we would not have, I mean, one of the, arguably one of the best schools in our country today. Wow. Well, and Life insurance is awesome, certainly, but I want to meet these people. They're amazing people. Right? What Talk about sacrificial giving, yeah. desire for generations of advancement. That's incredible. Speaking of... And think about know, the impact that they've had. Yeah, I mean, right. today, my, my brother alone uh, did yeah. a fellowship at Stanford. Wow. So, I mean, without them, then... It's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, the, the, it's not the axe. It's the lumberjack who wields it, you know. So, it's not that insurance saves the world. It's that people using tools in appropriate ways can leverage it for the betterment of mankind. So, speaking mm-hmm. of, J.C. Penney, uh, if you've been to those stores uh, or, you know, if you remember going to those stores decades ago, <laughs> uh, a growing businessman, James, became partner in a couple of dry goods stores in Utah in the late 1800s. By 1912, he operated 34 of those stores throughout the Rocky Mountains. In 1913, he moved to Salt Lake City and incorporated his stores as J.C. Penney Company. Now, um, 1913 is was the go-go years, but then by 1929, there were 1,400 stores across the country. So he's blown and going here. Uh, the Great Depression, of course, hit everybody pretty hard, including his stores, and he fell on hard times. So James Cash Penney was no exception to the overall general malaise and financial depression of the country, but he was able to borrow from his life insurance policy uh, in a critical moment to help his company meet payroll and to cover those day-to-day expenses. So he survives, his company survives, and Penny remained as a chairman of the company until 1946, and he actually served as an honorary chairman until he passed away in 1971. So his, his company is still, you know, making profits today. There's 1,100 stores that take in revenue of $18 billion a year. And so they're still uh, going and growing today. Uh, and it's because of those, those linchpin moments when you had access to cash, access to capital. And by the way, you know, when he's paying his employees, but all of his, empl- his competitors aren't paying his employees, where do you think those non-paid employees that his competitors are going to come work? They're going to come work for Mr. Penny, who's still paying out paychecks in the midst of the Great Depression. Do you think that made his stores more or or more competitive or had better employees? You bet. You better believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about uh, a, a wonderful farm that took, um, took some risks and uh, saved the day as well? Yeah. So if we fast forward another decade, so 1939 now, we have the story of Foster Foster Farms. So in 1939, a young couple named Max and Verda Foster started Foster Farms. So they actually started their farm, though, by borrowing $1,000 against their life insurance policy. So a policy loan, as we know it today. They used that $1,000 to invest in an 80-acre farm near Modesto, 
California. That's and, some cheap real estate. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I wish today. Mm-hmm. Um, and began raising turkeys and then eventually even chickens. Uh, by the 1960s, this company that was just started with a $1,000 policy loan, I can imagine that was probably paid off by now. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the 1960s, the company had outgrown that original farm, that original 80-acre farm that they'd bought. They ended up having to move its corporate headquarters to the small California Central Valley town of Livingston, where it actually still resides today. Um, and also today, Max and Verda's grandson, Ron Foster, is the CEO of the family-run business. It's now more than 10,000 employees strong with operations in California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Arkansas, and Alabama. And it has a line of products that are even sold globally. Wow. I wonder what the return on that $1,000 was. I know. So just a small little $1,000 life insurance policy loan turned into this, you know, huge company that is even selling products globally. Mm. And they're, um, you know, kind of what they're known for is having, um, you know, natural, not, you know, no additives to their meat, you know, so they're doing healthy, good things, you know, when with the chickens and turkeys and everything that they're raising. (laughs) Now, this is one of my favorite stories. So I'm happy to get to share this one. Although I think um, as my little daughter grows up and I'm watching more and more of their movies, I might be less inclined to, you know, be all about this. But Mr. (laughs) Walt, uh, in the 1950s, Walt Disney had a dream of creating this amusement park for children of all people. Uh, You know, so, you know, it really wasn't a um, common thing for theme parks in those days to be a family destination. They were really seen as seedy backwaters that were, you know, full of riffraff and criminals and all that. Uh, So he had a hard time, very hard time convincing banks and traditional financing operations that his idea was going to be profitable. So Disney actually is quoted as saying, hey, you know, I could never convince the financiers that Disneyland was feasible because dreams offer too little collateral. (laughs) I love that quote, (laughs) too little collateral. Uh, So, you know, it was it was sort of I guess part of the American story that he went to, what, over 100 banks and they were not willing to lend him money for this project. So at the end of it all, Disney packed away some money into a life insurance policy and then used that money, borrowed against it, to start the construction process for Disneyland. And it opened two years later in 1955 and hosted more than 3.5 million people in just the first year. So that success of Disneyland led to Disney World and Disney Japan. I mean, I've seen Disney's in Euro Disney. I mean, it's all over the place. So those theme parks are only part of their overall profitability project, but they're one of the biggest companies in the world at this point. Mm -hmm. Speaking of giant companies, what about this this next one? Yes. So uh, this next one, if anyone has seen the movie The Founder, you might have a little bit more context for this particular story, but um, it's actually Ray Kroc, which the name may not sound familiar if you haven't seen The Founder, but his company certainly is, which is McDonald's um, of all places. So after buying out the McDonald brothers in 1961, uh, Ray Kroc needed to actually borrow from his life insurance policies to pay salaries 
families of um, key employees in those early years. So after buying out the brothers, he fell on some hard times and was like, how am I going to keep this thing going? I just, you know, bought all this or paid all this money to buy out these brothers and kind of take over their company. Um, But how am I going to now pay these people that I need to keep? And so he ended, ended up being able to just borrow from his policy, take a policy loan, as we know it today, uh, from his life insurance in order to keep it going, keep those key employees um, retained at, at that time, which again, like you were talking about, Mark just makes his company that much more competitive and and everything. Um, another thing he also used the policy to fund was creating the Ronald McDonald advertising campaign. So, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of that one. We all know the success of of that campaign still alive yeah, and doing well today. Ringing in my ears, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we know how this story ends. We've all enjoyed, you know, many hamburgers as a result of that policy loan. But in my opinion, more importantly, fries. Oh, come on. Their yeah. French fries are so much better. That's what yeah. it's all about. Dip it in some of those. Uh, do they have ice cream? Yeah, they've got like frosty type things too, right? That's, yeah, they that's just the have normal ice cream. Uh, I don't do that. I just right. eat the fries. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that is fantastic. So if, again, did he know that he was going to do this when he bought that life insurance policy? No. I I assume he didn't anticipate needing to use it for these emergencies, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of the point. You pack away into something that you can use that has a predictable access to the cash. Mm -hmm. Same story with uh, our next wonderful uh, entrepreneur. These are incredible stories. 1980, Miss Doris Christopher, she had uh, a whopping $3,000 that she took out of her life insurance policy to start uh, this little uh, lark of an idea called The Pampered Chef. And that business of selling knives and such sold uh, later to Warren Buffett for a reported $1.5 billion in 2002. So three grand in in 1980 to $1.5 billion in 2002. Somebody, somebody give me a calculation on that because that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, so using $3,000, she borrowed from that life insurance policy. And she, you know, had a, a little suburban home in 1980 in Chicago and started this company. And all her time working with homemakers convinced Doris Christopher that women needed quality time-saving tools designed to help make cooking more uh, easy and uh, quick, right? So she had seen the success of Tupperware and that business model and developed this detailed multi-level marketing business plan. And then using that insurance money, she purchased some basic inventory. And that's what she used the money for. Then she started selling it herself. And yeah, by 2002, the company had grown just spectacularly. And uh, Berkshire Hathaway, part of Warren Buffett's uh, empire, bought it out. So uh, I'll tell this story too while while I'm on a roll. roll. I had a client recently tell me that he had attended a seminar with a um, uh, one senator and former governor, Mitt Romney. And Mitt, uh, apparently Mr. Romney uh, 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 disclosed in the seminar that he had 17 life insurance policies on himself and his family for businesses and for personal reasons. You know, this, here's my granddaughter, she's my car policy. Here's my wife, <laughs> uh, wife's three policies that we use for vacations. So I just think those kind of stories are just truly awesome. Mm-hmm. What about uh, some other politicians maybe that have used these? Yeah, so another politician, uh, uh, Senator John McCain, um, he also used life insurance. He actually used his life insurance policy to secure his initial campaign uh, financing for his presidential bid. So Senator John McCain used life insurance to be able to run for president. Uh, Danica Patrick, for those that have heard of her, uh, she's a famous female race car driver, and she's very vocal about the importance of life insurance, 
protecting and protecting the financial future of your loved ones and your family. So there's there's all sorts of people that are using life insurance in a variety of different ways. Maybe it's just life insurance protection. Maybe it's for a business. Um, maybe it's just for personal reasons. I mean, any number of different reasons and um, but the reality is that people are using it, you know, so, you know, why are we sharing all this? Why do we take this time to kind of share all this history, share all these stories? And I mean, well, the reality is we get a lot of questions from people asking, well, you know, bank on yourself is so great. Why haven't I heard of it? You know, if, if bank on yourself is so great or whole life insurance is so great, why isn't everyone doing it? And I mean, I obviously don't have the exact answer to why you haven't heard <laughs> of mm-hmm. this strategy or a whole life insurance, but now you have. So yeah. no more have that excuse. There you go. Um, you know, I don't have the exact answer for everyone, but the truth is, I don't know why you haven't heard of it you know, to an extent. It's out there. People are Mm -hmm. using it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of people that are trying to spread awareness of it. Um, And it's been around for hundreds of years and lots of people are doing it. And that's just kind of the reality. And that's what we wanted to kind of reshape that misconception of whole life insurance that it's it's old, it's antiquated, no one's doing it. Because that's just not true. I mean, we saw from over 100 years ago to today, how many businesses, how many companies, how many things wouldn't exist without whole life insurance? We wouldn't have Disney World. Yeah. Can you imagine a world without Disney mm-hmm. World? Mm-mm. No. Yeah. L- a little less happy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and a world without McDonald's French fries, that's almost as bad as I'll, a world without Disney World. I'll buy you some fries at some point, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just, just the pervasiveness of whole life insurance. I mean, it's out there. Um, I mean, I don't know why maybe not everyone's doing it and maybe all your friends haven't heard of it but you need really, to get some new friends yeah what's going you on need there. to get new friends because <laughs> all the people that are famous rich and successful have heard of it and are using it and right. that's just kind of the truth um you know so would you rather be average or would you rather kind of follow in the steps of those that have succeeded and done great things before you because many of those people have used life insurance um but you know just because the rich and famous are using whole life insurance as a savings and, you know, kind of investment type vehicle doesn't mean that they're the only people that it's for, though, obviously. And that's what our podcast is all about. Um, this is a, you know, strategy that is for you and me just as much as it is for Walt Disney and other, you know, successful and um kind of famous people. And so that's what our next episode is for. We want to share the stories of not only the rich and famous, as it were, but we also want to share the stories of the people that are just like you and me that have similar success stories to share from using whole life insurance. I mean, that have had just as much success with whole life as Walt Disney did and JCPenney did. Um, and even Doris Christopher, man, go her. Yeah. She's yeah. my new, she's my new role model. So. I, I, I wish she was my neighbor. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd buy some knives from her. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.